Hi, welcome to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. Today's lesson is called The Grace of God Educates Us. What kind of things does grace teach us? Well, on one side, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This was the message of Titus to the Cretan believers at the time. On the other side, grace is also teaching us to live self-controlled and godly lives in the present age. John is also going to be sharing a passage about the second coming of Jesus. Here he is with The Grace of God Educates Us, Part 2. In the Old Covenant, national blessing was held out to Israel as a condition for national obedience. So listen to the Old Covenant condition. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Pure condition of the old covenant. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, who is the mediator and testator of the new covenant, reverses this order. And he begins not with a condition, but with pure gift blessing. He reverses the whole order of the old covenant. And the blessings of the covenant, listen, are greater in the new covenant, greater than any blessing promised under the old covenant, because the reality and the, of the blessings in the new covenant are greater than the blessings of the old covenant. Hebrews 9.23 says, listen carefully, all of the temporal, physical blessings promised to Israel, including the land, the temple, the figs, the milk, the honey, all of it, every single bit of the old covenant, all of those physical, temporal blessings under the old covenant, Hebrews 9.23 says, we're just simply shadows and copies of a greater reality to come. It was temporary. Mount Sinai was never the end point for God's people. It was Mount Zion. The gospel is the end point for God's people. And moreover, and listen, not only the blessings of the new covenant are greater, but the blessings of the new covenant are surer than the old covenant. Why? Because the blessings of the new covenant are grounded on God's promise, not conditions. There are no, if you do this, then you will get this in the new covenant. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was never, ever instituted for individual salvation, nor for national salvation, nor for America's salvation. Has nothing to do with America, the star-spangled banner gospel, nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with, if you keep this, then you will get all these blessings. It has nothing to do with that. It was copies and shadows of a greater reality to come. Hebrews 9.23, and the blessings of the new covenant are surer than the old covenant because they are grounded in God's promise, his last will and testament. They are given to us, listen, an everlasting inheritance as a free gift, Christ on the Sermon on the Mount, stands as the great king of the Old Testament, 
dispensing his blessings on his people as in an inheritance. Why? Why can he do this? Because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, as our older brother, he came to fulfill the whole law on our behalf. I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it and then to give you all the blessings that I have inherited to you as a gift. So where does our obedience to the law come? It is, listen, our obedience to God's commands in the new covenant which are these virtues in chapter 2, pursuing moral virtue, obeying God's commands is not the condition for us to fulfill in order to receive or forfeit the blessing of God. What is my obedience then? It's very simple. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. My obedience is simply the appropriate response of thanksgiving in view of the mercies of God. That's it. Gratitude, grace, moving my heart to want to be godly is the appropriate response, Paul says, to the salvation that I am given in Christ. And so God turns his face to shine upon us as Jesus pronounced the blessings from the Sermon on the Mount. How is God present with us today with his favor? Where do we see his face shining upon us? Listen very carefully. God's favor, his presence today is by his Holy Spirit and promise dispensing his blessings and favor through us, to us through the proclamation of the gospel. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, listen, in the face of Jesus Christ. The Lord makes his face shine on us. He is gracious to us through the preaching of the gospel and through the public administration of the visible gospels, the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. It is his means of grace by which God delivers Christ to us. He reveals his favor to us in the person and work of Christ. But look what Paul says. He says, but the full presence of God's favor and blessing is realized only in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus who appeared in the past will appear in glory in the future. And it is then that the full realization the whole consummation of his whole redemptive work since Genesis 3.15 through the one promised seed who is Christ will become full reality on that day when he appears. And you might be thinking, but didn't Christ's first appearance reveal his glory? Is it saved only for the future? The answer is yes and no. When Christ first appeared in John 1.14, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God seen in Christ, which comes through grace and truth. Jesus manifested his glory in his first appearing. His glory was veiled in his first coming in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus makes this very clear in his transfiguration. 
when he peels back just for a brief moment to Peter, James, and John and gives them a brief display of the glory which he has possessed eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Peter said, wow, this is quite nice. Let's pitch a tent and stay here for a while. That's what believers want. But you see, that was only a preview of coming attractions, his future appearance in glory. Presently, God's glory is revealed to the church by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That comes directly from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul refers to the gospel as being, quote, the ministry of the Spirit. Through the proclamation of the gospel, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the Holy Spirit enables believers, listen, to behold the glory of the Lord. And Paul says, as you continually behold the gospel, you are seeing by hearing the glory of the Lord, which powerfully transforms your life, brings sanctifying power and makes you godly. And consequently, in the present, we see the glory of God by hearing, not visible sight. God's glory is present by promise through the Spirit working through the gospel and the sacraments, the visible gospels. But what God's grace is teaching us to look forward to with a confident expectation is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in consummation. That is the ultimate hope of the gospel. And so Paul's description, look what he does with Christ here. This is amazing. He says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the consummation of full favor. And he says, why? He says that the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of the clearest descriptions of the deity of Christ anywhere in Scripture. This is a powerful description of the deity of Jesus. This descriptive phrase, great God, is a common name given to God throughout the whole Old Testament. We don't have time to look at it, but there are numerous passages in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10, Ezra 5, the book of Nehemiah, the book of Daniel, throughout the Psalms, all throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament refers to our great God, our great God, our great God. And who does Paul attribute that Old Testament great God to? Jesus. Paul is saying the great God of the Old Testament is Jesus, fully revealed in the New. He is our great God. And what Paul is saying here is so profound. He is comparing Jesus to all the false gods in, in Crete. And he's not just simply saying that Jesus is greater than all the Cretan false gods. That's not what he's saying here. That's not how you read it. What he's saying is that Jesus is great. He is incomparably great. He is the only great God and Savior. There is no greatness outside of Jesus. He is our great God and Savior. He is the God who saved at the Exodus, and he is the same God who saved at Calvary. Jesus is our great God, and he's coming again. And when he appears in the fullness of his glory, this great God and Savior will bring with him the fullness and consummation of his blessing and favor upon his people. And Paul says, God's grace teaches me to wait eagerly to anticipate with confident expectation the full reception 
of the blessed God who is coming to give me nothing but joy and peace and blessing because he gives me himself. He's present with me now. This is what the gospel teaches. Now, in John chapter 17, verse 22, we just find something incredibly extraordinary about God's glory. This glorious appearing, God's glory. And you know what it says in John 17, 22? He shares his glory with his people. That's just utterly astonishing. Jesus praised the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Did you hear that? The glory you have given to me, I have given to them. You see, at the heart of the triune God, salvation is something breathtaking. And Michael Reeves brings this out clearer than anybody I've just about ever read. And I want you to listen to what he says about this. He says, the father gives all his glory, all his love, all his blessing, his very self, his presence exclusively to his son. And he then sends his son to share with us his fullness. The father is not about sprinkling blessings from afar. And his salvation is not about being kept at a distance where you can't really get to it. Merely pitied and forgiven by God, but he just kind of puts up with you. No, God the Father pours all his blessings out on his son and then sends his son so that we might share in all the glorious fullness that he shares with the Father. The Father so loves us And so loves the son that he sends the son and catches us up into that loving fellowship that he enjoys with his son. That is absolutely mind-blowing. Our hope, Paul says, is a blessed hope because in Christ's future appearing, when he comes, Christ will bring us into perfect blessedness which means we will come to share in Christ's glorious fullness. We will be perfectly caught up into the loving fellowship that the Father has always enjoyed with the Son. We will know what it feels like to be perfectly and fully in favor with the Father. John Chrysostom, who was one of the greatest preachers in the church, he said about this second coming, Nothing is more blessed and more desirable than that appearing. Words are not able to represent it. The blessings thereof surpass our understanding. He who saved us when we were enemies. What will he not do then when he has us approved? There's a glorious future awaiting God's people. And as we reflect on Paul's teaching, he has taken us through the whole sweep of redemptive history, past, present, and future. Christ has appeared in the past. He is educating us in the present, and he will appear in the future and consummate the salvation. So the grace of God, as it's teaching me, as we think about this, what is it teaching me? To look backward and to look forward. It's teaching me to continually look back to Christ's past appearing 
for grace to daily empower me to live a godly life now. Verse 13, God's grace is continually teaching me to look forward to the future appearing of Jesus in glory, which also exercises presently a cleansing power to enable me to live a godly life now. You know what Paul's teaching us? You can say it like this. We become like what we trust in and what we hope for. That's what we become. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, Christian virtue, Christian morality, obedience is driven by eschatology, Christ's second coming, eagerly looking forward to him appearing. This is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking that, well, I hope there's something better beyond this life than this present evil broken world. No, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that this expectation, this hope, this blessed hope of a future historical event, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the glorious appearing, it is as certain and secure because it is rooted in his historical past appearing, verse 11. Just as he appeared in the past, Paul says he will appear gloriously in the future. And so Christians don't have to wait in fear, but yet with confident expectation because the judgment has already taken place through their justification. You're justified. But I would just say that in the book of 2 Thessalonians, as a proper warning, if you're not trusting Christ, those who do not trust Christ now have every reason to be utterly afraid. Because Christ's glorious appearance will not be a presence of favor, but of judgment. Listen to what Paul says in Second Thessalonians. He says, Indeed, God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So if you're not trusting Christ this morning, please trust Christ. And join the confident expectation of the church for a future day of blessed hope and full consummation. Because he who appeared briefly on the stage of history and disappeared will appear again on the stage of history and will never disappear. 
And so the future appearing of Christ in glory is the believer's confident expectation that the grace of God teaches us to look expectantly to the future for this hope. And as we look confidently to this future hope, it in the present motivates me to live a godly life. Do you know what the Lord's Supper is? Among other things, one of the things that it is, is that it is a miniature anticipation of the future appearing of Christ, his second coming, over and over to the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul tells the Corinthian believers, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper focuses my attention not only on the past saving work of Christ, but on the future appearing of Christ and glory. And so in between Christ's first appearance and his future appearance, we celebrate the Lord's Supper now in the present, looking back to his sacrifice for our sin and looking forward to the consummation and liberation from the full presence of our sin. It teaches us the Lord's Supper, a visible gospel, teaches me to eagerly anticipate Christ coming again in the future. And so if we're to share rightly in the celebration of this sacrament and be nourished by Christ and all of his saving benefits, we have to listen to the apostolic warning that is given to us in Scripture. And so listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Just a couple of thoughts to help you to prepare to eat worthily. First of all, the Lord's Supper is only for those who are trusting in Christ. It is only a meal for God's people. So if you are not trusting Christ today, you cannot participate. But here is the good news for you. If you cannot partake of his meal, you can partake of his son now. And he'll save you, forgive your sin, justify you, bring you into his family. And then you can come and participate with the church. And then for believers, this warning that you just heard is not designed to discourage you from partaking. It's not designed to whip you with the law so that you kind of clean up your act right before you partake. I used to read it like that. And there were times where out in the church before the Lord's Supper would be served, I would just dart out the back. Because I was like, oh, shoot, I'm dead. <laughs> That's not what this warning's about. Nothing we do makes us worthy. You understand that? Everything that Jesus did makes us worthy. The way we partake in a worthy manner and remember Christ's body rightly in the sacrament is to realize that we don't come to this table perfect without sin, but we come to this table with sin, trusting in Jesus alone to save me from that sin. Because you see, this is a visible gospel. There is no law in this. This holds out Christ to me, just like the gospel holds out Christ to me. Your sin is forgiven. Take, eat, enjoy. 
Trust in Jesus alone. And so we look to Jesus to save us from our sin. We look to Jesus to come back and consummate this work of salvation. And so let us come this morning with great faith and not fear, with great joy and not gloom, because this is not a time to be sad. This is what some churches call the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. It's time to be happy, because this is a visible gospel. This is very good news for the church. So to demonstrate our unity and confessing our faith in the gospel together, let's recite the Apostles' Creed before we partake. And this is what it says. This is what we believe. We, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only unique Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Grace of God Educates Us, Part 2, and it's from the series called Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.